reports show that many young women will experience intimate partner violence, you know, like forced sexual activity, rape, or physical abuse while in high school. Exposure to intimate partner violence has immediate and long-term harm and consequences. It may shape a young person's self of worth, sense of self, or what they believe is acceptable behavior in romantic or sexual relationships, or permanently cause emotional trauma in an older woman. You have stated that there's a lot of work needed to raise awareness of the impact on victims, or more appropriately, the challenges survivors have faced after such abuse. In the U.S., there is RAIN, an acronym that stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And it's, it is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. And RAIN created and operates the National Sexual Assault Hotline, 800-656-HOPE, and online, it's rain, R-A-I-N-N dot org. What are all the things that could be done to increase this awareness? And do you have statistics with respect to the percentage of women or pregnant women sexually assaulted? You gave an initial rough statistics, one in five, but I'm not sure, is that specific to the percentage of women or pregnant women sexually assaulted? Thank you, Dr. Shavadi. Unfortunately, I don't have the stats, the exact figures, but what I would say, and I don't know that anybody would disagree with this, is that whatever figures we have, we must treat as an underestimate. I think that's the key word for me. Whatever figures there are out there may not represent the totality of this problem. And so there's got to be, in fact, I was so encouraged when we're asking a question about these organizations that are out there to keep looking for potential victims and helping potential victims through this especially when you look at pregnancy, because if you're looking at statistics, just by virtue of people being pregnant, their ability to help themselves and defend themselves, etc., I wouldn't be surprised if whatever figures we have are not representative of the problem. Also, when we look at a woman who's pregnant, we have to accept that she's not thinking about herself alone, she's thinking about the baby as well. And also, if there may be the concern about pursuing things, and then what happens to the baby if the father of the baby is not around anymore because he's facing or is within the criminal justice system. I think that that's a consideration. So sorry that I can't give you any exact figures, but one in five ladies certainly here in the UK experiencing sexual violence is already concerning enough for me. And so to think that I'm now also saying that whatever figures we have may not be representative of the extent of the problem, again, 
is a big concern. And so that kind of organization you talked about, and I'm sure there must be other organizations also in the United States, as well as ones that may not even come under the government umbrella. So things like local religious groups might be providing for their people or the people who belong to those groups, I think is something that we just have to, to support and hope continues to endure. The thing about violence is what the definition of violence is. I'm a bit careful because I don't know what your audience is, but I was saying to somebody the other day that, in a way, I feel that I may have been abused as a child. I said, what, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I'll never forget that there was a coup in Nigeria just before I was 10. It was in, in the 70s. And the perpetrators were actually executed um, in Bar Beach. And I was made to see pictures of that. It was, it was the pictures with, and I said, but think about it. How could that have been allowed to happen? How could, you know, first and foremost, to even have a death penalty, but then to put that on the news for young children like myself to see that amount of violence I just don't think it was right. <laughs> well, when I look back, I think way back then, we're not as sensitive as we are about these issues. I mean, you know, look about the past centuries, you know, people were publicly beheaded, you know, yes. you know especially. It doesn't mean it didn't affect us, but it means that we were desensitized and you've just hit the nail on the head for me. And one last one I'm coming to, that when... People are desensitized. I believe that desensitization is there, but over time, people become desensitized. So intimate partner violence and things like that would be things that people actually learn to tolerate and accommodate. I do not believe that we are born that way, but circumstances make us that way. And so there lies the problem that there has to be zero tolerance to that type of issue. And we got we have to keep on promoting that type of issue so that the world actually becomes a better place and the world keeps going in the direction of travel that we want it to go. A more tolerant, a more accommodating, a more sensitive world. Not a world where we define strength and valor by characteristics that may not necessarily be true indices of strength and value. So just to increase awareness, we just keep talking about this, you know, because just to increase awareness of this problem in women, you know, just keep talking about it and encouraging women that not to be ashamed to come out with issues of sexual assault. I'll give you an example. I was talking to some young people, which is something I like to do, I guess, that's my virtual being a pediatrician's son. And these were young people in their 20s. And one of the young men was definitely talking about protecting his wealth so that some lady he's involved with doesn't go to get everything from him. And so his girlfriend was with him. And then I, I explained to him that, does he understand what childbirth does to most women? So first of all, he didn't know that there was equal pay for the gender was not some, something the world still hasn't been able to achieve in the 21st century. It was, you mean it equal was to him. salary pay? Yes, equal pay. Then I said to him that, does he know that in many parts of the world, when ladies go on maternity leave, 
the fact that they're not paid fully for the period of their maternity leave. He was surprised to hear that. And then I also said to him, it also means that the number of kids women have could also affect the pension they're going to get because their earnings, if they're not working, so that does he know that the lady having the children who are probably going to bear your name, not her name, and this is the cost to her. And I noticed when he went, so his girlfriend said, I really like us to come and be visiting you if you don't mind. <laughs> Where would I like us to keep in touch with you. And the truth is, these are conversations that we have to have because if people, especially young men, suddenly don't see that perspective, and I'm not saying either because they're desensitized or just because they're not made aware of this, the chances are they wouldn't see intimate partner violence as violence, but may interpret it as being the man or being in control or being leadership. You'd be amazed at how a perspective of things that you could not even imagine will suddenly become the default truth about that situation. And so we have to keep promoting this ideology and we need organizations like the organization you're talking about to keep promoting the ideology. And I'm not looking at this from a feminist point of view. I'm looking at this from a purely social justice point of view. It's something that applies to all of us. Nobody should be a victim or subjugated to any form of physical intimidation whatsoever and mental abuse as well. Oh, thank you. You as a doctor, you have worked on forensics and saw the perpetrators, but now you see the victims and how the trauma affects them. What lessons can women learn from this, your invaluable career experience? What should women know? Thank you. Well, the first thing is that I'll have to elaborate on your question and say what should men and women know. So first and foremost, women, as I've said, most of this violence is from people who are known to the victim. And we also know that many people who have been violent will apologize and say they don't know what came over them and they'll be violent again. So I think women just have to have, or anybody, women or men, should have a zero tolerance to violence. And everybody deserves a fresh start, but it could always become one time too many. And that's what adds to the Office of National Statistics homicide list or serious injury, grievous bodily harm list we have because we always felt, no, we want to give people another chance. And I think we've seen a pattern. If people can't seek help, then you have to keep yourself safe. I do know from my experience that a lot of this violence usually has drugs and alcohol somewhere in the background as well. But I actually think that rather than women, it's men that actually want to start talking to about this. And if your audience has men, I would actually feel more fulfilled because I don't think people really know what damage they do to other people when they assault them sexually or rape them. When you see people going through two, three, four years of trauma, flashbacks, dysfunctional behavior, completely being unable to function and come out, having um, self-deprecating thoughts, getting into other relationships that are just as dysfunctional as the one they ran away from because they have no self-worth. When people see the work or the finished product of the work they started by abusing people, 
it may make us think twice. I think many perpetrators do not see the effect on their victims. And they just don't. And so they may not know, especially if they've never been victims themselves. Sometimes if one hasn't been through a difficult situation, one may not understand what it is to go through it. So I think it's just, we've got to be able to put enough resources in to help victims so that victims can recover and tell their stories so that more people hear about these stories. And there's a true and concerted commitment to prevent any other person from going through that. The cost to society is phenomenal. Uh, You cannot overestimate it. It's just phenomenal from what I've seen. And that's just anecdotally where I work in the independent sector now. Now, on the forensic side, I mean, can you share from what you've seen, can you share some pearls of how women can maybe help or defend themselves so that they're not seriously bodily harmed or or killed? Yeah, this is not research-based. This is just my experience, anecdotal experience. I think the first thing is a lady has to have a sense of self-worth. Um, some of us are lucky. Our parents give that to us or the communities we live in give that to us. They don't tell us, okay, let me put it this way. You've introduced yourself as um, a gynecologist and an and, and obstetrician. It means that you grew up in a, at a time and in an environment where nobody put a glass ceiling and said, you cannot be a gynecologist, you cannot be a medical doctor, you cannot go to college or to university. It probably would be the way you would bring up your own family to look at life, that you can be whatever you want to be. It's slightly different if people are born to think that there are certain things they cannot achieve. So they've already put them at a position where they are more likely to be taken advantage of because they don't even see it as being taken advantage of. They actually see it as, well, that's just a natural thing for the place they happen to to be in. So ladies or communities, and I would dare say governments, have a responsibility to put systems in place to ensure that self-worth is guaranteed for all citizens, not just certain citizens, and that this thing called privilege should not be restricted. We should all have entitlements, very much like your declaration that we're all entitled to the certain truths that are self-evident and we're entitled to certain things and we should all have that. Men and women and across the gender spectrum should have that. So that's the first step. The next step is to ask ourselves, why do people stay in abusive relationships? Now, if I knew that I could go somewhere if I was taken advantage of and they would never send me back and welcome me with open arms and say, yes, it's good you left, I probably would go to a more comfortable and safer situation. But how many times have we ever really thought about where victims can go for refuge? The reality is, if where you're going to is just as uncomfortable as where you're leaving, 
then you might as well just stay where you are. And so I think there's a responsibility we have. If people had to run away from abusive parents and then they got into a relationship which became abusive, what are they going to do? They can't go back to the previous situation because it's just as bad. So if you notice that you did ask me a question about individual interventions, but I'm I'm making it more national or community-based interventions because I think there's certain things we have to accept maybe bigger than individuals. And unless we make an effort to create systems within the environment to support people, we may not be able to to help. It's not easy to leave your home at 2 a.m. in the morning when you've got a very terrible partner, if the police are not ready to respond, and then you don't know what you're going to encounter in the the early hours of the morning on the streets. So you might have to just stay in that situation because it's bad, but it could be worse on the outside. Dr. Anthony, you are a firm believer that improvements in efficiency and quality will deliver better patient experience. And you are equally convinced that collaborative working between health professionals is the best way to achieve this. You have lived in the United Kingdom, which is about six hour time difference from us uh, this morning. You've lived in the UK for almost 20 years, having left Nigeria in 2002. You became a consultant psychiatrist in Oxlayers in 2006 and worked as a community consultant psychiatrist. What single most important piece of advice would you give a young medical student, resident, or early career physician looking at emulating you? <laughs> oh my goodness. That is such a flattering thing to say, Dr. Sarah. If I get it, I'm so grateful to you. And also that you're even accommodating to talk to me at a time convenient to me, but clearly not very convenient for you. I just think about it now. I think that I apologize. I'll have to make this up to you some ways. So if you need me on your show again, just tell me. I'll be there. Even if it's 12 a.m. my time, I will be there. And I like the way you phrase it, emulating me. I, I think that what I would say, and uh, well phrase the question is that what advice would I want to give to anybody who wants to get into the health sector? And thank you for mentioning things about quality. Uh, for me, the most important thing is that this endeavor, this way of life is a privilege. I really believe that being a doctor is a privilege. It's such a gift to be able to bring happiness and health to another human being. And we should not take that gift for granted. Also, I would always have to remind people that health only comes from compassionate societies. If you live in a compassionate society, in a generous society where people say, well, taxes can go into the delivery of healthcare, then we must see ourselves come to the profession with a very, very high sense of responsibility that we've been entrusted with the greatest investment the world has, which is the human being and the human health. And so we should come to that with a lot of diligence, um, a lot of hard work. And so, yeah, you talked about quality. I'm passionate about quality. We must look for effective treatments and keep research and development going to find effective treatments. We must deliver these treatments safely 
uh, do no harm in anything we do. And in so doing, we invariably guarantee the ultimate patient experience. And that's what we, that, that should be the focus of what we, we do. And so when I was in National Health Service and, you know, the very first meeting you have with your trainees, it used to be a civics lesson for me. I would say, look, this is not, you're not, you're not going to talk about anything medicine here. You're doctors now. Uh, let's talk about some basic civics. And then I'll kind of elaborate on some of these concepts I've raised and just hope that they go along their career with that sense of responsibility. And if they do that, then it will be worth its while. So that's the advice to anybody who wants to get into the medical profession from my end. Well, that's powerful. So basically you're saying that this is a profession that we should consider ourselves to be in a privileged position and to deliver the care very empathetically. Absolutely. Absolutely. It brings to me humility and I'm grateful that the world makes it possible for us to still earn a living and live a decent life doing what we do. Now, going back, you know, perpetrators of sexual violence often use tactics such as guilt and intimidation to pressure a person into something they do not want to do. It can be upsetting, frightening, or uncomfortable for anyone to find themselves in this situation. What tips may help a woman exit the situation safely. And again, I want to use this to remind our listeners in the United States, especially of the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. They can chat online also at rainrain.org. And there you can speak to someone who is trained to help you stay safe. So, Dr. Anthony, what tips may help a woman to exit a situation of sexual violence? Thank you so much. Really great question. And it comes back to what I said, zero tolerance. It has to be zero tolerance. I like the way you phrased the the question, um, saying that people use intimidation, also, the projection is not my fault. It's your fault that I was um, physically aggressive towards you. If you had behaved this way, I wouldn't have done that, you know, etc. Cannot be rationalized. We must not accept that. People have to leave. But I also think that, and this is not on an, on an individual level, I think it's more of a, on a national or global level, uh, there's still too many societies in the world where the playing field is not even for women. And women just have too many disadvantages, which makes it almost a default that they will be in some way or the other abused. And unless we all make concerted effort to change that and change our mindset as well and truly value every human being and understand that every human being brings equal development to the global population and equal opportunity to the global population. This is not something that is going to go away, unfortunately. It's not something that's going to go away. We cannot tolerate it. And it's not just a male problem, but it's also a female problem as well. It's how we look at ourselves, how we view ourselves. And there are many times when you find 
victims of sexual assault, for instance, are being asked questions about the way they dressed or how exposed they were. Who cares? Everybody has a right to dress however they want to, attire themselves however they wish to. And why should that be a question? A personal experience I had recently, when people want to make complaints, they'll ask me to do capacity assessments. I just ask myself after a while, why am I even having to make people pass a test to be able to tell their story? There's a whole criminal justice system out there that is going to validate or invalidate whatever. So why should I have to make people go through unnecessary steps? And so these are all the things that we have to, to take into consideration. I, I actually think that for young ladies, if you meet people and empower them by informing them and educating them, but I, I think that communities have to have places for young ladies to be so that when they're in difficult relationships, they can exit knowing that they have safe places to, to go to. So I think that's the because it's for me, it's why people stay and are unable to, to leave such situations until it almost becomes too late. That's a question I ask. And they should understand that and guard against those type of scenarios so that ladies would feel that there are other options for them and not blame themselves for whatever unfortunate situations they find themselves in. Men as well, because it's not only ladies who are victims of domestic violence. Men could be victims of domestic violence as well or emotional abuse. Well, some of the ladies would say that they stay because of the financial security in being in such a relationship or, you know, they have a roof over, over their heads or at times they even make excuses for their partners that they think he's going to get better, he's going to change his ways. And these are some of the reasons that women stay, you know, they have a lot of young children living in a shelter or they think, well, it's not so bad, you know, he's not going to kill me. I mean, those are some of the reasons that women stay. It's unfortunate, it's scary, it's painful, but do you hear that also? I do. I do. I hear that. I hear excuses sometimes being made for the perpetrators. I guess it's empowering people when people feel completely disempowered, completely stripped of all dignity and possibilities of self-actualization. Then I think that's what we tend to see. And it's work on an individual basis, which we do. We do a lot of what we call dialectical behavior therapy in my service. Um, it's a form, it's a psychological therapy for victims and for people who have behaviors which are kind of harmful. But it, it spans about a year. Sometimes it could take more than a year of that intervention. But I've actually started seeing results or the mindfulness the distress tolerance it's really and then people move on to radical acceptance and not seeing that accepting my past and then for working towards a better future through interpersonal effectiveness it's i actually see people translated from a place where they couldn't even be left alone because they couldn't stay safe if we didn't have somebody supporting them to going back to get jobs. And what that journey has shown me is that when people are giving self-worth and self-belief, the possibilities are just, the possibilities cannot be, cannot be quantified. There's endless possibilities for such people. And, uh, and so it's something that I think we should 
persevereth, but it takes resources to do this. It's not, it's not a free resource. It's quite expensive to provide this for people. If someone is pressuring a woman to engage in sexual activity, first of all, it's important for her to remember that being in that situation is not her fault. And we did talk about consent a lot, but what exactly does consent look like? And what does consent not look like? And how should a woman respond if someone is pressuring her into sexual activity? Thank you. I like the way you phrased that question. Consent, and I'm sure as a gynecologist, as somebody who does surgery, cannot be spoken about without talking about capacity. So you've got to have capacity to consent. So the two of them go together. Those two concepts go together. And when you say being pressured, one of the things about capacity is that you cannot say anybody has capacity if they're under duress. So if people are emotionally overwhelmed, so I can't be having a question about surgery with somebody if a person is in severe pain or is overwhelmed or under duress. So I think that's the key for me, that consent is informed. So people have to know what they're consenting to and they must not be under any form of duress at all. And then we can see if they can truly understand and retain information. They can weigh the pros and the cons and communicate clearly whatever decision, no matter how unwise how or how unreasonable that decision is. Because we want to promote autonomy. So for me, consent is, it has to be free from pressure. So once I hear a question and say somebody's been pressurized or lobbied or prompted. I begin to worry about consent under such situations because I start hearing coercion and that worries me. And I think that that's the message to young ladies that if you feel pressurized, then it means that it's not something you want to do because if it's something you want to do, then you will not be pressurized. And then to get out of our communities, a lot of these errors, because in all spheres, books we read, films we watch, there's always these suggestions that people don't know that they want to say yes, so they have to be helped to say yes. And I think that's where these type of errors come from. And we laugh about these things, but it's not really right. And I think we have to stop calling these erroneous concepts out so that people quite... Because if, if, if we laugh about things, then we normalize them. No matter how abnormal they are, we begin to normalize them. And as we said earlier on, we get desensitized to them. So as soon as people now understand that when it comes to anything to do with the physical body, we must respect whatever anybody's position is and respect the change to that position should it occur. And that's the paramount thing. I do not believe we would have to have conversations about protecting vulnerable people or people in this type of situation because humanity would now interact with each other against those set principles of equal respect or mutual respect. Thank you. You know, brainstorming ways to stay safe may help reduce the risk of future harm. It's important to think about safety as part of, for example, travel preparations, safety in situations where alcohol is involved, involved safety with online dating, 
and safe web browsing? What can a woman do for safety planning in anticipation of some of these situations? Thank you. Just from my rather naive position, I remember when we heard things about if you go to a bar or a pub, it not be a good idea to come back to a drink that you left open because you don't know what anybody might have put into that drink, you know, things like that. So when you mention alcohol and drugs, I would say that much as it's people's choice to do what they want to do, but certainly you don't want to be in a situation where you're not fully aware of your environment. <laughs> so both for boys and for, for men and women, uh, it's a good idea not to get oneself inebriated and not be aware or be disinhibited. So I think that's that. I think we also have to, there has to be a level of discerning power to be able to judge characters properly and to listen to what people say and to get some idea of what they are, what they believe, and decide whether one wants to have themselves in that situation or, or, or not. Yeah, I think safety planning is a very good idea, as you said. If you don't have to stay with someone, uh, and you can stay by yourself, and so you don't feel obliged in any way, you know, that it's, you know, it's like good things to go around with people you trust, around people you trust, and to be confident at all times, to be aware. Yeah, I, I think it's difficult for me to, I'm not really a forensic expert in that regard, I'm more from a mental perspective. But I certainly can say that the basic principle here is adopting a common sense approach to keeping oneself safe. Yeah, I think it's very important. And, and not to ever disregard that important statistic that most of these cases are from people we know. The perpetrator is known to the victim. So the people to be most aware of and beware of are the people in our immediate vicinity and people known to us, not some stranger out there. I think that's the key message from the statistics we have. Oh, well, thank you. And finally, Dr. Anthony, when a person says something that doesn't seem right, there are simple ways to step in and help a friend, you know, whether it's giving someone a safe ride home from a party or diverting a person who is engaging in uncomfortable behavior. Anyone can help prevent sexual violence. How can family members know if their loved one has been sexually assaulted or traumatized, even when that loved one is too young to speak for themselves? You know, what steps can one take in protecting others without harming themselves in ultimately trying to prevent sexual harassment and assault? Thank you. I would say that that's where the key word you used is the answer to your question, loved one. We must let our family members know that we love them. And even when they have being through some of these incidents, we shouldn't look at them less than they were. And you'll be amazed at how many people actually completely take in and identify with the shame that they feel and blame themselves for the incident. No, no, they've got to be 
me to understand it was no fault of theirs. Whatever the circumstances are, they are loved. They are still as precious as they were before the incident. It's the same human being. There's no difference. They shouldn't go about feeling any shame, doubt, any guilt. And people have to do that, not blame them and say, why were you there? Why did you hang out with this person? And further invalidate them. On the contrary, we should make sure they know that our love is unconditional. I take a very Carl Rogers approach to this unconditional positive regard, especially where I work. I've had patients telling me, I blame myself, I shouldn't have been drunk. And I say, well, I don't see being drunk as not, you've said you said no, and the person disregarded that. That's not fair (laughs) to you. And don't blame yourself for that. You're, You're entitled to take a drink if you want to, and you should actually make you responsible for such an unfortunate action carried out against you. And people respond to that. Um, people respond to that. Wow, wow. Dr. Anthony, we want to thank you immensely, immensely for coming on to Cocoa Pods, zooming in all the way from the UK. And if there are any final thoughts, you know, of final words you just want to share with us with respect to women keeping safe out there or not being sexually assaulted are there any final words you would want to share in closing well yeah i have some final words but i don't know if it's about not being sexually assaulted but it's certainly about emulating and i just like to say that it was an absolute pleasure engaging in this interview and meeting you usually we don't see that many female obstetricians and gynecologists indeed surgeons and yeah i think you your accomplishments are fantastic and this work you're doing is so desperately needed at this time, especially when one sees what's going on in the world. And so I can only just say, please keep up the good work. I am grateful that you gave me an opportunity to reflect with you on such an important topic. And if you ever need me to do anything, please let me know. It would be an honor because I think it's very important. And it's important because whether we like it or not, we all come from a womb. And so an investment into female reproductive health is an investment into humanity. Wow. Wow. Thank you. That is so deep. Thank you so much. And, you know, just thank you for your time. And for our listeners in the UK, we are in Forsyth, Georgia. Forsyth is about 60, 65 miles south of Atlanta, Georgia. I think a lot of people know Atlanta, Georgia. So we're in a small town in Forsyth, Georgia, and we have this foundation that we just talk about all the issues that in this season one, we're talking about all these issues that affect pregnant women and women around pregnancy and things they can do to just make things better for, for themselves. So Dr. Anthony Akenswa, all the way from London in the United Kingdom, we just want to say thank you so very much for your time and for your words of wisdom. We're very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.